Hello, everybody. This is Shane Claiborne, and thanks for joining me. I'm going to do a series of shows uh, on the idea of what it means to be pro-life. And and don't don't turn things off quite yet. I mean, I, I want to start by expanding our vision for what it means to champion life, not just to one issue, but to uh, consistently and comprehensively advocate for life. Uh, I wrote a new book, as you may know, called Rethinking Life. And it's all about this. The subtitles Embracing the Sacredness of every person. So a lot of what we're talking about, I go into a lot more detail, but I want to do a few shows around this idea uh, because I grew up, as many of you know, in the Bible Belt in East Tennessee, and I passionately uh, embraced the label pro-life. But my concept of what it meant to be pro-life revolved almost entirely around abortion. Ending abortion was as fundamental to my faith as being baptized or taking communion. I mean, it was one of the litmus tests for whether or not you were um, a, a, an authentic Christian. Was are, are you against abortion? And I want to say that abortion matters, and we're, we're going to dive into that a little bit. But it is a strange thing to live in a world where we can be pro-military, pro-war, pro-guns, pro-executions, pro-death penalty, and still say that we're pro-life as long as we're against abortion. <laughs> but, but this is where we find ourselves. And I... I want to suggest that, you know, a lot of folks, including myself, that say that we, um, when I used to say I was pro-life, I would be more accurate in saying I was anti-abortion uh, because it was as if life began at conception, but ended once you were born, you know, <laughs> so that's why it's it's more accurate sometimes to say uh, of many pro-lifers that they're pro-birth, because once the baby's born, uh, the, the, we, we really forget about it. And and so, you know, as I, I realized, you know, I had all of these ideologies, especially when I think of abortion, I, I was passionate about it. And yet I had few, if any, relationships with people who had had an abortion or at least felt like you know safe enough to talk to me about it and so as we talk about this and all the other issues of you know what it means to champion life um, on the death penalty and the environment and racial justice and immigration um, it's important to think that this is not just about ideologies and opinions but it's about people and when I think of these issues, even like gun violence, um, it's not enough just to think of, about that these are, are, are issues we have opinions on, but these are people who are directly impacted by policies. And sometimes our theology or our political opinions become an obstacle to love rather than a conduit of love and and so the the refrain i keep going back to in this uh, new book rethinking life is what does love require of us that's the question you know i that that i think we can ask on all of these you know immigration what what does love require of us um when it comes to abortion what what does love 
look like. So, you know, when we think about issues, hot button issues, um, we can't talk about the issues while avoiding the people that are impacted by them. We can't talk at each other. We've got to talk with each other. So let's think that as we think of what love requires of us, um, that question changed everything for me because love requires more than uh, a bumper sticker, right? Or a t-shirt or a, a slogan or talking point. Um, love requires proximity and relationships. It, it means drawing near and leaning in to the people who are impacted by these different issues. So for instance, when I think about the death penalty, I think of so many of the people that I know on death row um, who have names, you know, and some of them I believe are innocent and some I believe are, are guilty. Uh, but one of those that uh, I have, one of the people that's really, really impacted me and he's become a dear, dear friend of mine is Derek Jameson. And he's one of the uh, many folks that we profiled in this new film. If you haven't seen it, it's called The People Versus the Death Penalty. And we uh, spotlight a bunch of people impacted. But Derek uh, spent like almost 20 years on death row, sentenced for a crime that he had nothing to do with. And he had six execution dates, was hours from his execution when he was finally proved innocent. And they, the state had suppressed all kinds of evidence, over 30 pieces of evidence that proved his innocence. They knew he was innocent. And so after two decades on death row, after losing um, his mom while he was in prison, seeing many of his friends executed and being absolutely traumatized by that, uh, Derek was released. And now when I think of the death penalty, you know, it's not not just this issue to debate, but it, it's people that are so deeply impacted. Um, I think of a mother that I, uh, I, I met in Texas that told me the first time she had kissed her son after 30 years of not being able to hug him or kiss him, the first time she kissed him was after his execution. And she said his cheek was still warm because he had just been killed. I mean, this is what we're doing to people. That That's our death penalty criminal justice system, right? So it, it's affecting people. And, and, and that question, what does love require of us is so important. When I, when I think of war and militarism, uh, one of the images that, that comes to my mind is when we were in Iraq and we went to the, the children's hospital called the Al-Manzar Pediatric Hospital in Baghdad. This is in the middle of the bombing when 900 bombs a day were falling on Baghdad while we were there and we held these kids whose bodies were just riddled with missile fragments. Um, that's what our country, the U.S. and coalition troops did in response to 9-11. So in response to the grief and outrage and horror of 3,000 lives that were lost on 9-11, we began dropping bombs and killing thousands of people in response to that, that had nothing to do with September 11th, right? Incidentally, and these children, I remember, I remember going to the um, uh, one memorial um, called the um, uh, Amaria Shelter. Uh, so it, there was a, it's like a memorial there now, but this was a shelter that was filled with women and children. They didn't even allow men to go into the shelter. It was filled with women and children. 
when uh, the U.S. dropped two smart bombs on that shelter uh, and just incinerated all these mothers and children. And when I went there, you could still see the um, silhouettes of their 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 these moms holding their children. It, it was burnt into the wall by the power of those those bombs. So, I mean, I mean these are terrible stories, right? But th that's why I think as we think about life and how precious it is, as we thought, think about these issues like war and the death penalty and gun violence, it's this, this is about real people. And the question that we've got to be asking as we debate or talk about important issues is, is what does love look like? When I when I first started writing Rethinking Life and, and years ago, as I began thinking about a, a better life ethic, that's not just about being anti-abortion or it's not even just about gun violence, but it's trying to, you know, we're trying to be comprehensive and all encompassing in this ethic of life. There, there's there's this idea of the consistent life ethic, right? It's a conviction that all life from womb to tomb is sacred and catholics and some anabaptists and others have has have found that framework to be really helpful as we see that all these issues are connected and we need a moral framework that integrates all of them into this consistently pro life you know ethic this this advocacy for life that that includes everything so the early christians i mean this is one of the things that's amazing about them and i um, i'll probably have another show where i go into detail about the the early christians but uh, there's a great book, by the way, called The Early Christians in Their Own Words. And it just has an editor, Eberhard Arnold, that that in, it kind of put all of the words of the Christians in the first few few centuries of our faith uh, out there and translated all those and stuff. And it's beautiful. But one of the things you see is that the early Christians, like in the second century, third century, they were so consistent in their advocacy for life and in their um, denunciation of death like they they spoke against war they spoke against domestic violence they spoke against capital punishment they spoke against abortion they spoke against the gladiatorial games right because they saw this as in their culture sort of a popular form of entertainment that um, glorified violence and one of the ways that our sort of human infatuation with violence expressed itself in their world. So they they repudiate, like they just said, no, no, to be a follower of the Prince of Peace is to be a champion of life. And so as we think of all that, I want to invite us to expand, not shrink, the idea of becoming champions of life, to extend the same passion that some of us may have on one issue to other issues and to, and to think of what may, maybe, you know, if, if I'm not speaking out or not active enough on gun violence, let's, let's try to team up with other folks that are focusing on that. And as, as you may know, at Red Letter Christians with Death Penalty Action and others, we're trying to host um, uh, vigils and protests around every execution that takes place in America. Uh, and we're teaming up with 
other groups, Raw Tools and Moms Demand Action, Every Town, all these groups working on gun violence and common sense gun reforms. We're working on immigration with all kinds of partners so that we can see some paths to citizenship and advocacy for asylum seekers and refugees. And, uh, you know, on the issue of what it looks like to be pro-life. I, I mean, I got to confess, I, I wish a lot of my conservative friends cared as much about life after birth as they do about life before birth. I wish they, you know, would speak out on things other than just abortion. And I wish some of my progressive friends saw, you know, uh, uh, the abortion not just as the uh, uh, an issue of um, rights, uh, but also as an issue of life and a moral issue, something that we can champion and say, we're going to, we're going to champion the life of the mother, but we're also going to champion the life of the unborn. We want to figure out a better way of, of seeing that these, these are not either, or this is something we can do together. So we, we need a better conversation on abortion. And we're going to talk about that because Red Letter Christians is we, we've hosted two town halls, uh, on abortion, and I think we can we can do better. And that issue does matter, you know. And the fact is that um, on the issue of abortion too, that consistently the large the, the the number one cause for having an abortion is economic. It is um, not feeling stable enough financially to bring a child or to bring another child into the world. And so, if we really care about uh, reducing the number of abortions, then we should be champions of things like health care and affordable child care and a living wage and things that would contribute to the financial stability of new parents that are um, wrestling with how they're going to bring a kid into the world. And on some of those issues, folks that would say that they're pro-life have not been the champions of the policies that would uh, make it more feasible to have a, a child or another child. So, uh, but in the middle of all that, I want to invite you to, to lean in and to celebrate this idea that every person matters to God, that every life is sacred. And that should impact how we, this should impact our theology, our politics, our, our social activism, uh, everything. It's time, I think, to to rethink how precious life is. And, and and to get us started on that, I just want to go back. Let's go back to the beginning, y'all. When, when, when God made everything, you know, in the book of Genesis, God took dirt and breathed life into it to make humanity. And it says, God created that life and said, it is is good. In fact, that's the the chorus over and over in Genesis 1 is uh, God created the water and it was good. God created the land and the plants and the trees and the mountains and beaches and it was good. Uh, God made the sun and the stars and it was good. God made birds and fish and monkeys and butterflies and seahorses and the duck-billed platypus and it was good. And then you see that when God makes human beings, that's where it says this, it was very good. There's a little added word there to say that this is better than good. This is holy. That this life that the human beings that God made together uh, are actually 
made in the image of God, uniquely and beautifully good and sacred. So there's a part of, I think, just stepping back and going, all of creation is holy and beautiful. God made this earth. And sometimes we get stuck, I think, in the human-made part of it. You know, the the computer screens and the uh, concrete uh, and all of the stuff that humans have made. And we lose this kind of fascination and wonder with the gift and sacredness of life. Um, uh, and, and I remember one particular story uh, of a young man named Tyshawn that came uh, came to my house and he was banging on the door. And it was one of those loud bangs. You know, we call it the cop knock. It was, he's pounding on my door. And I, I thought there was a, an emergency or something. So I, I run to the door, I run out and Tyshawn drags me down the street uh, to show me a firefly. This was his first firefly he had ever seen. And he goes, what is that? And I'm like, that is a great day for God. When God made a bug that's butt glows in the dark. <laughs> how beautiful, how wondrous is that? So there's this kind of childlike wonder that we need to reclaim, you know, spend a little time in creation. And um, it was Ralph Waldo Emerson that once um, said, you know, he, he basically said, if if the stars only came out once every thousand years, then no one would sleep. The, the world would become religious overnight. Um, you know, if the stars only came out uh, once every thousand years, uh, we would be out of our minds, delirious with wonder, rapturous with the glory of God, says author Paul Hawk. And he's kind of riffing off of this Emerson idea that if the stars only came out once every thousand years, the entire world would sit in awe of God. But as it were, the stars come out every night and we watch television, as Emerson said, or we scroll on our social media and we miss the wonder of every day life is a miracle. Uh, you know, one of my my friends is an astronomer. We And um, he was, before he was my friend, he was my professor in undergrad. He taught me astronomy, Dr. David Bradstreet. And he, he wrote this book that we've, we've uh, spotlighted, you know, a number of times. He's actually been on, on the radio show and the podcast, but uh, his book's called Starstruck. And he, he uh, talks about the 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 wonder of creation. I mean, just I mean, just for one little thing, like check this out. Um, Haley's comet is sixty million miles long. <laughs> sixty million miles long. Um, every second, the con the sun converts four million tons of material into energy. That's the equivalent of ten billion nuclear bombs. <laughs> um. There's a protective shield around the earth. This is one of the things Dr. Bradstreet says that um, saves us from being hit by 100 tons of small rocks. Um, every single moment we would be hit by 100 tons of small rocks and space debris that would destroy the earth. Like everything's perfect, right? The way that the creation's cre made, even the, the tilt that the earth has, keeps us from burning up and keeps the um, 
the, the, the angle that we're tilted is just perfect. The distance from the sun, if we were any closer, we would burn up. If we were any further away, we would freeze. I mean, all of this, it almost is like it would take more work to not believe that there is a divine hand in all of this creation than to believe that there is a God. I mean, you, you think of the wonder of, um, of the fact that there's 200 billion stars in the Milky Way alone, 200 billion. And then there are 200 billion more galaxies in the universe. <laughs> kind of makes you feel like, wow. And yet each one of us is made in the image of God. So my wife's really good at this wonder. I mean, this, this sense of wonder, she's always given me uh, facts, you know, like um, one, th these are a couple of Katie Joe's facts. Um, the hummingbird's heart beats more than 1200 times a minute, a minute, a hummingbird's heart beats 1200 times a minute. Um, it flaps its wings 60 to 80 times a second. Um, Katie's also been a beekeeper. We've talked about bees on our show a time or two, too. And this is one of the things she says, bees have, the, the bees have five eyes, like a, a honeybee has five eyes. And that one hive can house around 50,000 bees, 50,000 bees in a beehive. And they travel, the bees visit five million flowers to make one pint of honey. Five million flowers to make one pint. That makes you go, there's something special, you know, about putting honey in your tea for one, but there's also this beautiful miracle of life. I mean, think about it. There's roughly 10 million forms of life on the planet, 300,000 different plants, over a million animals, uh, right at a million insects, 10,000 birds, 8,000 reptiles. I mean, we're discovering uh, new species all the time. We're also sadly seeing many species disappear. But there's this, you know, this this beauty and creation. And that's why, you know, sometimes when my evangelical friends um, ask me about environmentalism and say, you know, does it, uh, what does this have to do with God? Like gardening or advocating against climate change you go this has everything to do with our faith if we believe that there is a god that made creation and made it so beautiful and so perfect like we can't help but advocate for life so god makes beautiful things out of dirt here's another fact i don't know if you knew this but the word human comes from the latin word humus which means dirt so an Adam, where we get Adam from Adam and Eve, it means earth or ground. And Eve means life. So it's all about God bringing life out of the dirt. We, of course, remember that at Ash Wednesday, you know, it's from the dirt that we were made into the, the dirt that we will return. But this idea that God is making life and making life in God's image. It's also interesting that God breathes into the dirt to make life. And rabbis often say even the name for God, Yahweh, which is the, you know, the Hebrew name for God, it is the same consonants as you, as, as br they're breathing symbols, Yahweh. And there's a lot of 
rabbis that say even the name for God, I am who I am, is God saying, I am the breath in your lungs. What if just as God breathed life into dirt every time, everything that has breath, as scripture says, is praising God just by breathing in and breathing out. I think of the words of my my friend, uh, Jason Gray. He He's a great singer and songwriter, a Canadian guy. And he wrote a song called The Sound of Our Breathing. He reflects on, um, you know, how incredible it is to imagine that we're designed to say God's name every time we breathe in and out. Everything that has breath is praising God. When babies are born and they take their first breath, they are saying the name of God. When we die or we take our last breath, we're no longer alive because the name of God is no longer on our lips. So these are the lyrics of Jason's song that I'll I'll kind of close this episode with, but Jason Gray's song, it goes like this. This is the sound of our breathing. Everybody draws their very first breath with your name, God, upon their lips. Every one of us is born of dust, but come alive with heaven's kiss. So breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, because the name of God is the sound of our breathing. So y'all. Let's protect our childlike wonder, go hang out in creation, watch a hummingbird, marvel at a firefly, and here's something else. Look into the eyes of another human being as if you were looking into the eyes of God, because one of the clearest glimpses that we get of God is looking into the face of another person. And the closest we can get to killing God, if there were such a thing, is to kill another person, a child of God, because that is the image of God. And anytime we crush the image of God, the life of another human being, God takes it personally. So let's become champions of life from womb to tomb without exceptions. Thanks for listening, y'all.